Hey y'all, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel and Hookset. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal is to be a blessing to everyone who listens as you continue on your journey of faith. It's also our hope that you'll be encouraged to find a church to belong to so you can plug into that congregation and bless others with the gifts and experiences that God has entrusted you with. Well, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you and encourages you to get out there and be the blessing. God bless. Let's jump into the next step in uncovering and defeating bitterness. I'm going to go through our, our main text here, Hebrews chapter 12. We should almost have this whole thing memorized by now. I'm going to read through this again. Therefore, since... Therefore also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Now, let me press pause there so that we understand what the great cloud of witnesses is. If you were to turn your Bibles back one chapter, you have chapter 11. It's the roll call of faith. It's a story of Old Testament, New Testament saints and their faithfulness to God through incredibly adverse circumstances. Uh, in fact, the, the end of that chapter talks about how some were sawn asunder, but didn't recant their faith. They were driven out into the wilderness, but they didn't recant their faith, right? The, sometimes we get this idea that you just pray, rub the magic lamp, the genie pops out, and he gets you out of all of your trouble. Well, the people that were sawn asunder, sawn in half, they would stuff them in logs and they would cut them in half, Listen now, that was how they escaped. They met Jesus. Okay, sometimes we are called to go through suffering in life. We're going to talk about that this morning, and sometimes the suffering is unfair. What did I say last week? Your kids come to you and they say, well, well, it's just not fair. And then you reply, life's not fair. If you're, if you're over 13 here this morning, you should have already figured out life's not fair. Life is not fair. So what do you do with all of that? And that's what we're talking about here. So this great cloud of witnesses, it would, be, it would behoove you to go back into chapter 11 and read the stories of these people. And sometimes God delivered them while they were on earth, and sometimes their delivery wasn't until they died and and met the Lord in heaven. So we, we go on. That's the great cloud of witnesses. We're surrounded by historical faith. Faith that didn't fold and faith that didn't bend in spite of horrific circumstances. And the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. You've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons or daughters. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. 
For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we much, not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of lights and live? For indeed, for a few days, our earthly fathers, they, they chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless afterward. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your hands which hang down. I like to think of that as God saying, chin up. And the feeble knees, straighten the path of your feet, so that which is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Don't continue on the same path that got you into trouble in the first place. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully. And I capitalize the word carefully. We're uncovering bitter roots here. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane, irreligious, ungodly person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He, he wanted to get back what he lost, what he sold. And he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So we have to be careful that a root of bitterness does not go so deeply into our lives that we get to a place where we can't even repent. Now, where we've come thus far? Briefly. Bitterness brings darkness. Think about that for a second. Bitterness brings darkness. And when we're, talking about, when we're talking about bitterness, we're actually talking about light and dark and the influence that we have. The influence that we have on the world around us. Our circle of influence. It's either going to be for good or for evil. And if we allow bitter roots in our lives... Listen, it's going to be for evil. Not everyone is going to be corrupted, but many are defiled, the Bible says. Many are corrupted by your bitterness. And the problem with bitterness is it hardens our heart and it gets us to the place where we just don't care. The problem with the root is often we don't see it until it springs up into a tree and then we're just so hardened, so hurt. In fact, we, we can pass our bitterness on to our children. We hold grudges, our children hold grudges. Bitterness destroys our influence for God, pursue peace and holiness, without which no one shall see the Lord. If we're caught up in bitterness, they won't see the Lord in you very well. We talked about what bitterness was. It's a feeling of anger, resentment caused by particularly, particularly by perceived unfairness and suffering or by adverse 
circumstances. We considered some synonyms for, for bitterness, resentful, aggrieved, dissatisfied, disgruntled, discontent, grudge-bearing, begrudging, indignant, rancorous, spiteful, ill-disposed, sullen, sour, churlish, petulant, peevish. Look in the mirror this morning. Look in the mirror this morning. In the book of James, he tells us the Word of God is a mirror, and the Word of God is telling us to be careful lest there's a root of bitterness in our, in our hearts that will grow up into a tree that defiles many. Look in the mirror this morning. What do you see? James says if you look into the mirror of the perfect law of liberty and, and it reveals to you things that need to change, and then you walk away forgetting what you've seen, dude, you're a fool. I'm adding that. You're being foolish. So many times we read the Bible or we hear a sermon preached and it kind of hits us between the eyes and then we walk out and we forget what we heard. Be not forgetful hearers, but doers of the word. We forget what we heard and we go on like we were. And so we, we talked about this. Kill it before it starts. We want to kill it before it starts. Now, some of you may have a little bitterness in your lives, but you're not a particularly bitter person. Beware, beware. Be careful. It can happen to you. You might not be that kind of person who's just unforgiving and cranky. That might not be your nature. But it doesn't mean you're exempt. And so be careful, the Bible says. Be careful lest a root of bitterness spring up. So look carefully in your life, examine yourself, especially when you're going through conflicts and confrontations and, and hard times, especially when it seems like, like the whole world is against you, especially when you look up to the sky and say, really, again, what else is going to happen? What else could go wrong? We find ourselves saying that, and God has giant shoulders, and he can handle our disappointment, but you need to, listen, you need to hash it out with God. We kill it before it starts. The passage begins with the admonition to look at Jesus, to stare at Jesus, to focus on Christ. It does several things for us. First of all, our relationship with Jesus. He's walking with us through all these trials, through all these hardships, through all of the heartaches. He experiences them with us. Not, he doesn't just watch us passively. Oh, look at you. That's too bad. That must hurt, huh? That's not Jesus. He walks right in it with you. He gets right into the mud with you. He gets right into the dirt, right into the heartache, right into the sorrow. And he feels what you feel. And he's not Bill Clinton. I feel, I feel your pain. He really does. He really does. Not empathetically, not sympathetically, but literally feels your pain. So kill it before it starts. We stare intently at Jesus and, and we know that he walks with us, but we also see his example. Jesus who was betrayed, but not bitter. Jesus who was denied, but not embittered. Jesus who it says in John, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Rejected, but not bitter. And so we know Jesus walked with us in the trial, but we also have this amazing example of Christ 
who was empowered by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, which is available to us today so that we can walk as he walked. No, we won't be perfect because we have a fallen flesh and a dead nature. But the power is available to us. Kill it before it starts by focusing on Christ, being fixated on Jesus over all else. The very best way to avoid bitterness or to defeat bitterness is before it starts. That's the best way. It's a Reformers Unanimous principle. It's easier to keep something clean than it is to clean it up after it's been made a mess. Did I, did I get that right, Peter? It's close, right? I remember him talking about the crock pot or something that he didn't clean for like weeks or something, and his wife came in and she saw it wasn't clean, and then he had to clean it. Then he had to, he, he said, it would have been a lot easier to clean this pot if I had done it right away. Instead, he waited. And if you're a husband and you've waited, you know that your wife is very disappointed because you made a mess. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Avoid bitterness before it starts. Be intentional. And so we want to talk about the effects of bitterness today and In order to talk about this, I want to take us to an Old Testament book. So I hope you have your Bibles. We're going to travel back in time to the book of Ruth. Boy, I've read Ruth before. I don't know how many times. And as I was studying and preparing this summer, I'm reading through Ruth, and I got chills in this story. This story gave me chills. It's an amazing story. And I'm not going to be able to read all four or five chapters to you guys today, but I hope that you'll get a taste of this and it'll make you go home and open it for yourself and and read this amazing biographical book of Ruth and see the truths in it. There are certain principles that you need to understand in order to fully grasp this book, and hopefully I'll be able to share some of those with you today. We're going to begin reading in verse 15 of chapter 1. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, and I'm going to give you the backstory in a minute. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. And and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. And this is an amazing moment because of the history here. Naomi's husband has died, her sons have died, and her daughters-in-law are now widows, and she's been in this foreign country, and she's trying to tell them, go back to your people. And and they're saying, no, I'm going to stay with you. And and they both argue with her. And then she convinces the, the one, or- Orpah, to, to, to go back. And Ruth, this is Ruth, say, no. Where you die, I'll die. And, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts you and me. And she saw that she was determined to go with her. She stopped speaking to her. Now, the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. Sound familiar? Bethlehem birthplace of Christ. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? 
This is what bitterness does. And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So let's take a look at this woman, Naomi. First of all, her, her name means pleasant. Often when you're studying the Bible, it's, it's incredibly helpful to, to take a look at what these mean, names mean. There's, there's quite often significance to the, to the meaning of the names. What we're seeing in this story is Naomi's name meant pleasant. She was uh, of a pleasant demeanor. Obviously, this is the opposite of bitterness, isn't it? She was pleasant. She wasn't peevish. She wasn't a grudge holder. She wasn't cranky. She wasn't resentful. She was pleasant. And it's such an amazing contrast to this story. We look at the story of Ruth, and often theologically we focus in on what's called a kinsman redeemer. So in the nation of Israel, if you were married to a Jewish man and he died, his brother or his nearest relative was supposed to take you as a wife, and the children that were born to you would take on your, your, the, the original husband's name, and therefore his name would not die. It would carry on. And with that comes property. The husband owned a, a plot of land. The children would inherit it, right? So are you following me? So that a lot of times we, we look at Ruth theologically, and we're going to do that today. And a kinsman redeemer is a... Is a is a forerunner of Christ or a foreshadowing of Christ. And we'll see this as we get along, but, but that's not the only story that is played out in this book of Ruth. This story of bitterness is on brilliant display, even in just the names, just the names that are used for Naomi. The contrast of pleasantness and bitterness. And so let's take a look at the story. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to share with you some things that she went through. She went through some pretty tremendous trials to get to that point where she looked at Orpah and she said, just go home. Just go to your people. Go to your gods. Leave me alone. I have nothing for you. So what did she go through? First of all, it begins with a famine in the land of Israel. Now, now listen, I know in the States, we think it's bad. I'm oh, so upset. Trisha and I were at Walmart after we dropped the kid off at Deep Freeze, grabbed a few things. I wanted some cream cheese. The only cream cheese they had was like honey, butter, um, pecan, honey, butter. Like they just didn't have cream cheese. Like I'm like, I just want cream cheese, man. Got to have something for my bagels. It's a famine in the land. I thought I was going to starve to death. We're looking at cheese. Not just the cream cheese, but I'm looking at all the shredded cheese. It's like almost all gone. I'm like, what's happening? We're going to starve to death. There's a famine, and we don't know what famine is. I'm sorry, we just don't. What was it, the, the Dust Bowl in Kansas? That, that was trouble. We haven't seen trouble yet. We may, who knows? We haven't really seen trouble yet, like real trouble, real famine. And there was a famine in the land of Israel. And there was a potential of starving to death. 
It was hardship. That was her first trial. We think it's tough. Listen, that was her first trial. You think that was hard? Was it her fault? There's a famine in the land. Second trial, was her husband Elimelech? Says, uh, hey, sweetheart, we're moving. What? Yeah, we're going to go to Moab. What? Yeah, you don't know anybody there. Foreign country, but I hear that the famine doesn't extend that far, and so maybe we'll be able to survive. We're going to go to Moab. Good God. So they moved to Moab. She left a community that loved her. We know they loved her because when she came home 10 years or so later, they were excited to see her. Is this Naomi? Dude, where have you been? What happened? Tell me your story. And they're, they're excited. I've experienced something similar when I was asked to go plant a church. Back in 2004. Back in 2004, I was at Emmanuel and and pastor came to me and said, you're the only one that is fully trained and ready to go plant a church. Guess who's going to plant a church? You are. I got bitter. I was angry. I did not want to leave. I was a youth pastor, and that is the best ministry in the church if you can be part of it. I still think back of those five years that I was a youth pastor. It's five of the best years of my life. Loved it. I love my kids. I see them growing up now. I, I, I just loved it. But I had to go. I didn't have a choice. And so the first two years that I planted Lighthouse Baptist Church, this was my attitude. All right, Lord, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to have to do it with, through me because uh, I'm not doing anything extra. I'll knock on doors, fine, whatever. I had such a bad attitude. It amazes me that God didn't just thump me right away. I had a horrific attitude. And in the middle of all that, God got hold of my heart and my spirit and revived me. And that was when we ultimately ended up following that, merging with Landmark and seeing how God moved in that, in that way. So I get a little bit of what, what Naomi felt. I left my community, of, my, my, my community of believers, my family. It, it amazes me how easily people leave churches today. Get their little feelings hurt, get their panties in a bunch, and I'm not coming back. Yeah, I said it. Get over it. I'm not coming back. You hurt my feelings. No wonder divorce is so high right now. I'm not coming back. I'm not ever talking to them again. Church isn't perfect, guys. You're in it. I'm in it. I know it's not perfect because I look in the mirror. That's all I need to do is look in the mirror. And then I'm like, oh, my church is not perfect. <laughs> and here I was thinking it was. And then I saw me. When people leave their families. And they, don't even, they don't even think twice about it. Or they do. But I'll tell you, all, all, often there's bitterness. A root of bitterness that was not dealt with that grew up into a tree and drove them from their family. That's a conversation for another time. Trial three. So she faces a famine. There's starvation around her. She leaves her family. She leaves her community. Right? She leaves her support system. 
She leaves people that love her to go to a, a foreign land, and then her husband dies on her. How dare he? She's got two boys, two sons, men, and her husband dies. Trial number three. Now, I know some of you ladies, you're like, how is that a trial, Pastor? Because I'm kind of like thinking that's a gift right now. Not a gift. Not a, come on, it's not a gift. You guys online, it's not a gift. Her husband dies. She's mourning. She's upset. She's hurting. And her sons die. Now, it's, it's a little confusing in the wording of when her sons died, but it seems that her husband died and her sons died in quick succession, about 10 years after they arrived in Moab, making a life for themselves. You want to talk about one thing after another. So the famine, yeah, about 10 years later, her, her husband dies, but then her two sons dies, and now she's died, and now she's looking back at her life. I was doing this the other day, counting her trials. <laughs> What's that song? Count your trials, name them one by one. Count your trials. Every hurt will come. Count your trials. Where's Nate when I need him? Uh, you'll get bitter and become crazy. That's, that's the end of that song. You start counting your trials. Guys, give up, man. Life is a trial, the whole stinking thing. If you don't have Jesus, sure, you can focus on all of that. But we need to turn our focus on to Jesus and understand that even in the trials, even in the darkness, even in the heartache, there are blessings. So Naomi was pleasant, but that didn't last too long. That did not last too long. This catches up to the verses that we read. Naomi was overcome with grief. She was overcome with disappointment. As she started her journey back to Bethlehem, she encouraged her daughters to return to their people and to their gods. You imagine that. The nation of Israel was to be a nation of priests to reach the world for Jehovah. That was their, that was their commission. Sound familiar? We have received the commission because they didn't carry it out. But here she is. Forget about the commission. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. At first, she's trying to be nice. And then when they're pushing back against her, she's, she's not very nice. She's grieving. She felt like she had nothing left in the tank, nothing left to offer them. She was alone, grieving and hurting. And when they pushed back, that bitter root revealed itself. She said, I have nothing for you. I have nothing for you. I'm too old to provide. It's too late for me. Quote her, she said, no, my daughters, it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of God has gone out against me. I think we could argue that she's had things rough, huh? Imagine losing your husband and your sons in, in the, probably the same battle or the same illness that swept through that town. And now she's straddled with two daughters-in-law. 
She has reason to be upset. She has reason to be hurt. There's a reason for it. One thing after another. But friends, we don't have to give in to bitterness. Grief is healthy. Bitterness is not. She had a hard time. Her bitterness was toward God, allowing all these tragedies and hardships to her. She believed, though, she believed that God could have stepped in at any time. And so it's, it's always been fascinating to me, or recently within the last two or three years, as I, was, as I was considering our relationship with God, and when we get angry with God, we get upset with God because He doesn't get us out of trouble or answer our prayers or whatever it is. We get, we get hurt, we get upset. Well, that, that, that's an, listen, <laughs> that actually is a display of your faith in God's ability, isn't it? She knew God could have stepped in at any time and relieved her from this burden. That's faith. But her faith in the ability of God did not extend to her faith in the goodness of God. And that's where the sin came in. But she had faith in God's ability, but she lost her faith in his goodness, at least for a while. This is what she said when she came home. She said to the women that were excited to see her, hey, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Who is she blaming for her hardship in this passage? Who is she blaming? Did she blame the virus that swept through or the, or the raiders that came into the town or a bear that ate her husband and sons? Who, who is she blaming? Ultimately, who is she blaming? Go ahead, buddy. God. That's right. She's blaming God. That's the world today, by the way. That's the world today. Hey, if God is so good, why doesn't he? They blame God. They blame God. I went out full. I had a husband. I had sons. And I came home empty. The Lord has testified or held his hand against me. The Almighty has afflicted me. And so we look at her name, Mara, bitter. She went from pleasant to bitter. So let's consider the effects of her bitterness briefly this morning. I know you're saying, briefly? Dude, it's late. Not late yet. Wait, wait a minute. One, as I mentioned... The nation of Israel is supposed to be priests to the world. What did she do? What was the impact of her bitterness on Orpah? What did she say to her other daughter-in-law, the one that didn't go with her? Go back to your people and go back to your gods. There's no, I have nothing. In fact, she was like, do you think I'm going to find a husband at this age? Do you think that I could get pregnant at this age? And if I did, you think I could have two sons? And then if I had two sons, are you going to wait until they grow up to marry them? I've got nothing for you. Go home. And so instead of drawing them to the Lord, she pushed them away. Thank God Ruth is a cut above, man. God had already worked in Ruth's heart. She'd already seen something in Elimelech and possibly Naomi and seen their faith. And she had trusted God. 
Her God, your God is my God. But she, this, this woman was bitter and she influenced people around her for the wrong cause. What does bitterness do? It doesn't just hurt you. Holding a grudge doesn't just hurt you. It influences those around you and corrupts them. She silenced a crowd of people who were excited to see her. Good golly. Have you ever noticed that when you walk into a room and when people are around you, all of a sudden, they're walking on eggshells? Anybody ever notice that? You ever notice when you walk in a room, people are kind of like, oh, here's your sign to borrow from one of my favorite comedians. What's his name, babe? You took me to the Engvall, Bill Engvall. Here's your sign. It's a stupid sign, but here's your sign. You might be bitter, or we could go Foxworthy. If you walk into a room and everybody goes, you might be bitter. If you walk into a room and everybody just kind of turns away from you, you might be bitter. If your kids are cranky and grudge holders and angry, you might be bitter. If you have people in your life that are afraid to confront you, you might be bitter. You've given them reason not to make you better. You realize that when you're not approachable, you give people a reason not to make you better. Oh, that'll preach. Oh, it is. Does the temperature of the room go down when you walk into it? Y'all might be bitter. Now we see the self-appointed name of Mara revealing her bitterness for all to see. And obviously, at this point, her bitterness is no longer just a root, is it? It's no longer just a root. It is now a full-grown tree. And now she sees it. So we go to Ruth chapter 4 now. Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife when he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, and, and this is something, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead of my notes or not. This is something that I thought was so awesome, because God is so good. She changed her name to Mara. It's the only time that name is mentioned in the whole book of Ruth. Everybody else calls her Naomi. I don't know about you, but I think that's so awesome. Like, God was not giving up on Naomi. It wasn't time yet. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, didn't call her Mara. People love you, you know. If you're trapped in bitterness right now, and you know it, I can pretty much guarantee to you, everybody else knows it too. And if they haven't turned their back on you, they are agents of grace in your life. And y'all need to humble yourself and ask their forgiveness for your bitterness because bitterness, my friend, is a sin. It is a sin. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. It is a lack of faith in the goodness of God. 
So these women who she shut down, talk about like, you ever somebody walk in a room, hey man, this is so awesome. The Bills are doing so great. They got a real quarterback. And then somebody meanly says, where's Ron? They're going to lose anyways. I'm like, I'm so excited that we finally have a quarterback. And then Ron said, you brought your cup to church and you talked about the Bills and they're going to lose. That's why I don't have my cup up here anymore. But somebody else in the church loves me. And they painted, a, they painted a Buffalo Bill logo last night and they brought it into me this morning. I'm like, somebody loves me. If you have people in your life and you know you're bitter, they know you're bitter. And if they've not abandoned you, they are agents of grace in your life and you should thank the Lord God Almighty that they are still there. You should thank God that you have a Ruth in your life Ultimately, it was Ruth who was able to cut through everything and whom Naomi finally found a a heart of compassion again. The woman said, look at Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative, a kinsman redeemer, and may his name be famous in Israel. And, And the kinsman redeemer's name is famous in Israel. One of the pillars outside of the temple is named after Boaz. You may not have known that. And may he be a restorer of life and nourisher of you. I don't know what happened. Slide change error. Can you jump to the next slide? Is anybody in there? I'm on verse 15. And may he be a restorer of life and a nourisher of you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, that's Ruth, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. She, she had a grandbaby. She had a grandbaby. It was awesome. And Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. 17, and also the neighbor women gave his, him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. Now listen, Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David, and David is the father, many times removed, of Jesus. Ruth is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Dude, without the trials and the tribulations that Naomi went through, what would have happened with Obed and Ruth? They would never have met each other. They would never have met each other. They wouldn't have been poor. How did, how did Ruth meet Obed? Well, Naomi and Ruth get back to Israel. They have no husband. No one's providing for them. They're, sounds like they're living in a hovel. Naomi's getting older. I was thinking about the, I need to shovel the driveway this morning, and Nate's up at deep freeze, and I'm like, oh, my back hurts when I wake up in the morning. And I walked out, and wouldn't you know it, somebody shoveled my driveway. I don't know who it was, but thank you. So grateful for that. So here's Naomi telling, Ruth, Ruth finds out there's fields. There's fields around, and in the fields there's barley and grain. And this is how 
God set up things up for the poor of the day is that the Israelite farmers were to till their fields or harvest their fields and leave some left on the edges and stuff that the, those that were poor could go into their fields. And it's called gleaning. And they would take what was left. And so Naomi's like, hey, I mean, Ruth's like, hey, 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 Ma, I want to go out into these fields and uh, get some grain for us. And, and, and so she goes out into the field and she gets to this one field that is possibly close by. And it's, um, it's uh, Boaz's field. Turns out Boaz is a pretty rich dude. He's uh, well-known and wealthy. And so she's in the field following along behind the women who are, who are harvesting. And she's just doing her best to get some, some grain. Boaz comes back from a business weekend. Drives up. Hey, guys, how's it going? You can see Boaz is a good dude right away. Talking to his harvesters. Hey, how you guys doing? Things going all right? Like, oh, yeah, it's going great. And their, 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 uh, their expression to him as he drove up, I'm saying drove up, rode up, whatever you want to say, was, hey, Lord, what's up? Like they, you could tell they loved their master, their, the Lord of their land. And, and he communicates with them. And then he sees this beautiful young woman. He's like, who's the girl? Who's the, who is this girl? That was like me when I went to work at Kmart. Went to work at Kmart, and there was this short little girl sitting behind the uh, service desk because she was like the best, and she got the best jobs. The rest of us were stock boys and grunts, and, and it was like, hey, who's that? Who's that girl? She caught, she caught his eye. Who's that girl? And they said, oh, she's the, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, and they're widowed. He goes, huh, thanks. I think I'm going to go say hi. Boaz wasn't terribly shy, apparently. So he walks up, hey, how's it going? What's going on? And she tells him a little bit of what's going on. He says, listen, from now on, stay in my fields, harvest with my women, and when you're thirsty, get a drink from the water that they pull from my well, and I'm going to tell my young men to leave you alone. It's like when a new girl comes into the student ministry when I was a youth pastor, we had a, we had a code name uh, so that we could keep our eyes on things. We, we knew that they were fresh meat. And I know it's not, people don't like that, but that's what boys, it's, you could sell. All of the boys' hormones just went, <clears throat> oh, new girl. Uh, oh, me like girl. And so Boaz was like, listen, boys, hands off. Keep your eyes in their sockets and leave her alone. In fact, be nice to her. That's kind of what I used to do with our boys in the student ministry. Just guys. It's not the first time you've ever seen a girl before. I digress, but that was hilarious. Um, Cracked myself up so much. So Boaz goes his way. Ruth comes home to Naomi. Brings her some barley, and she's like, what happened? Where'd you get this? And she's like, I met this guy, Boaz. She's like, you got to be kidding me. Boaz is a close relative to your father-in-law. 
The clo- remember how it started? The closest relative is responsible for marrying the widow of a childbearing age so that she can bear sons to her husband who died. So now, now Naomi, the gears start working. Because this is what mother-in-laws do. The gears are working. She's like, listen, I got, a, I got an idea. Why don't you go to where he's going to be threshing the, the grain tonight, uncover his feet, and there's this, this, this whole sort of ceremonial thing, but essentially she went and was offering herself as a wife to Boaz. There were no sexual relations. She wasn't stripping him down and dancing in front of him saying, hey, take me. Everything was very proper and precious. And he was so protect. I'm telling you, read the story. He was so protective of her. He was so honoring of her. But there was a problem. There was another kinsman closer than he was. Another relation that was closer. He'd be like a second cousin. Well, there was a cousin. Well, that's a problem. Because Boaz is, I want to redeem you. Buy you back from property, poverty, restore your land, and care for you and your mother-in-law. But there was a problem. So he said, thank you very much. I'll give you my answer in the morning. Did you get that reference? And so um, he tells her, go home. Don't be caught leaving here. He gives her a gift. She brings it home, and Naomi's, what's this? He gave me a gift. And then he had to go deal with the first kinsman. The first kinsman had the right to the property. And that's all he was thinking about was, sweet, I get a Limelex property. This is awesome. I'm going to add to my coffers. And so what happened was, was uh, uh, Boaz goes over and he says, hey, do you want to redeem Elimelech's property? And he's like, yes, I do. Now, Boaz was sly. Because he goes, you do realize that when you redeem Elimelech's property, that you are taking Ruth to be your wife, to bear sons for Elimelech's son. Well, that was a rub. I want the property, but I don't want this wife. I already have, he very likely already had a wife. He already had children. And so when, if he took hold of this property, it was possible that he would get nothing in the exchange, essentially, because the sons born to Ruth were going to inherit that property. So he's getting nothing in the deal. But a wife, which apparently he didn't have respect for her because she was awesome. So Boaz says, well, do you want to redeem it now? And he's like, yeah, you take it. You take it. Now, this is beautiful because that's the law and that's grace. The law could not redeem us from our sin, from our death and woundedness, but grace came in and rescued us. So Boaz is a type of Christ. So amazing. You start to research and study this. I want you to hear this now. Boaz can be seen as a reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ, our guardian redeemer. We're outsiders, impoverished, forsaken, struggling to make it. The Lord showed us compassion and gentleness and generosity. He lifted us up out of spiritual poverty, provided 
for our eternal needs and gave us a forever home. It's interesting that Boaz is the name of one of the two bronze pillars in Solomon's temple, 1 Kings 7.21. Boaz means, in him is strength. In him is strength. And this was to indicate Israel's need to depend on their God. So there is, there is hope. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with bitterness, look at the story of Ruth. It doesn't have to end. It doesn't have to end in bitterness. God has not abandoned you. Often he's working behind the scenes and there's things that we can't understand. Sometimes we can't understand them in our lifetime, but can you trust that God is indeed good? And that's the, that's the point of the story. God is good. God is good. He will not leave us alone. He will never forsake us. He is good. And when all hell breaks out around us, he's still good. When you're tired, he's still good. When you're wondering, how much more can I take? He's still good. He's still with you. And he'll be with you to the end. Let's bow our heads a moment and close our eyes. If you're here, well, most I know most of you this morning, I don't know if you're all saved in, in truth, but have you had that time in your life where you recognized, maybe you're watching online, that you're a sinner by choice and by birth, that you don't even measure up to your own standards, much less the standards of the Word of God. In fact, the Bible teaches us that the standard that all the world is going to be judged by is the stature of Christ. So we could look at the Ten Commandments, and that's fine. None of, us, none of us have made it through those ten. But you also have to look at the person of Christ, who not only did he never do anything sinful and wrong, but he always did everything right. Have you recognized that you don't match up to that? Have you had that time in your life where you fell on your knees symbolically, spiritually, physically, and you cried out to God to be your Savior, to forgive you of your sin, to do for you what no one else could, to cleanse you from unrighteousness? Have you had that time in your life? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross to take the penalty that you and I deserve and that he rose from the grave? Have you cried out to him if you have? You have everything you need to defeat bitterness in your life. You have everything you need. If you haven't, would you, would you cry out to Jesus today, God Almighty, I know I'm a sinner by birth and choice. And I'm asking you to save me and to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me and make me your child. Thank you, Jesus, for making that sacrifice for me. I ask you to be my one and only Savior. Hey all, thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to know more, please go to our website, emmanuelhooksit.com, where you'll find helpful links and resources and where you can contact us directly. That web address again is emmanuelhooksit.com. Bless God, get out there, and be the blessing.